Well, good morning to you. Our text uh, today in the next couple of weeks will concern, uh, at least our topic will concern the end, end times, which is typically a very exciting study for some. Some of you are just crazy about it, and uh, you're consumed with end times, and uh, I'm just say up front, when you come down and say hello, don't come tell me about your scenario. Is that okay to say? Man, there's so many scenarios and there's so many crazies out there with the end times. And there are crazy people. And really, you can take the end times way, way too far. Uh, we go with what's revealed here. But um, because we live in a day which may very well be right at the end times, people are, are very diligent in their newspaper eschatology. As you know, eschatology is a study of the end times, and you read the newspapers, and you read this, and you see that, you say, oh, there it is, this is what this means, and you plug that into the Bible, it doesn't, none of that does, at least not in the theology of this premillennialist, and so uh, I hope to convert you to premillennial theology and save your souls if you're not already. <sighs> study of it is... We see it from the Gospels, all four Gospels. Actually, the synoptics are the most thorough in the end times. In uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, in uh, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 17, and chapter 21, which is where we are today. And the study of, the, of eschatology of the end times, eschatos is the Greek word for, for the end, and the study of it, eschatology, uh, comes about because of the corruption that's in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus is speaking. So we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Uh, Jesus is in town, and his last week in town, it's his Passion Week. It's Wednesday. In fact, we'll look at, uh, this is a Wednesday night sermon. Um, up to this point, the scribes and Pharisees have followed Jesus around, and another group called the Herodians, and the Sadducees know a little something about Jesus. And the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, they know about Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They want Jesus dead. In fact, some of them have been conspiring to kill Jesus. They really want to kill him. You wonder, why? What did he do? Well, he, he preaches something that's contrary to what they preach. Uh, they also see that uh, what kind of a man he is, and they don't like that kind of man. The kind of man is that he's a humble man. Uh, he's God in flesh, and yet he's humble. He has no background to be trained as a rabbi, and yet he is better than any rabbi they've ever heard of, including themselves. And so Jesus goes into the temple that first day when he comes into town and he turns over the money-changing tables and he tells them that they're all corrupt, essentially. You're all corrupt. And my father's house will be called a house of prayer, not a place for your corruption. Well, they're offended by this as if they weren't already offended enough, but they're angry. They want blood. And then Jesus sees, last week he talks about how the scribes, they, they, will, they are so wicked, they will take a, a woman like a... Uh, a widow who has nothing and who is dependent upon uh, her religious leaders to take care of her, uh, Jesus talks about how these scribes take advantage of these women. Uh, and while telling them about how these scribes and Pharisees take advantage of widows, the lowest of the low, I shouldn't say the lowest, but the poorest, the most destitute of people, a widow, if she didn't have a husband or a son to care for, would die of starvation. But if the scribes got a hold of her, she might be able to eat what she's taken advantage of. And then Jesus shows this, how one of the, the widows of the day, they're, they're standing in the treasury and they see this one particular widow come in and she gives everything she has. Everyone else is giving out of their wealth. She gives everything she has, which wasn't much. Um, less than a penny in modern terminology. Less than a penny. We don't have coinage that's less than a penny. And she gave less than a penny. But it was all she had. And Jesus just noted, he said, look, they're giving a bunch. She gives very little, but what she gave was everything she had compared to what she had. And it was just illustrating how the scribes and the Pharisees were taking advantage of these widows. Uh, there should have been someone at those, those uh, repositories of giving and said, widows, we don't need your money. You don't need to give money. We need to give you money. And I would say that in the modern day is that we don't need, the church is not supported, nor does it need the money of destitute poor people, nor do you need to give out of your extreme poverty to where you have nothing left. Some people are, are duped into doing that by preachers on the radio. Giles was here for just a couple of minutes of announcements. He mentioned two of them. 
Doesn't take long to mention them. And so Jesus is going to, what he's saying is that this temple is in bad shape. The whole of Judaism is in terrible shape. And that's where we, we left it last week in chapter 21, verse, verse 4, with this widow. Jesus doesn't commend her. He doesn't say that we're supposed to go therefore and do likewise and give everything we have. He never says that. We're to be willing to give up all things, but God does not require 100% of our income. He doesn't even require 10%. What he requires is, is an attitude that in our giving is that of cheerfulness. I give back to you cheerfully. Lord, you gave me life, eternal life. I give to you cheerfully my service, my money, my time. And so in 21.5, and while some were talking about the temple, because they're in the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Votive gifts would be like uh, in our church if someone were to come to the church and say, hey, I want to I dedicate some new outside doors to the church. I want them to be huge, beautiful, and ornate. That would be a votive gift. Or anywhere around the building, I want to donate this to make it beautiful, whatever. These are the votive gifts. The temple at that day, it is said by the Roman historian Tacitus, who was in no way Jewish, Roman, he said that the temple in, in Jerusalem is of great wealth. His words, is of great wealth. Um, other historians of the day, uh, one of them in particular said that if you haven't seen the Jewish temple, you haven't seen anything good. Now, there were some beautiful um, structures in, ancient, in the ancient world, but the temple apparently took them all. It uh, was the second temple, by the way. Solomon built the first temple. Uh, around 900 BC, first temple was beautiful. He made it beautiful. You can see him dedicate the temple in the book of First Kings, and so it existed from about 950 BC until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586 BC. In 516 BC, it was completed again by a man named. Thank you, Zerubbabel. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to say that word, isn't it? Zerubbabel. It's a great word to say after missing two three-foot putts in a row. It just rolls off the tongue well. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. He built the second temple. That's in the Bible. Uh, and it was dedicated. from. But it was just a, a shell of its former self when Zerubbabel rebuilt it. Um, by the time of Herod the Great, 19 B.C., he began the beautifications of the temple. And he made it over the course of 19 B.C. It wasn't even completed until around 64 A.D., uh, that's how long it took to be completed, and then it was destroyed a couple years later after that. But it was an amazing temple, and I say all that to let you know that when we're talking about this temple, it is, imagine what you might consider to be the most beautiful structure you've ever seen. Have you ever seen a structure that's so beautiful, you're just awed by it? Wow, that's amazing. That's out, outlandishly beautiful. That was the temple. And that's where they are. They're talking about the temple. They couldn't help but to notice it. In fact, Matthew and Mark say that this conversation about the temple took place on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that right now on the Temple Mount, there is what's called the, the Muslim Dome of the Rock. It's a beautiful structure in and of itself. And that's where the temple used to be. And you just go east of that and you go right. When I say east, I don't mean drive a 100 miles. It's just go due east and you'll go right down through what's called the Kidron Valley. And then you'll walk up into this area called the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you get to the top of the hill, you're at the Mount of Olives. And so you look down the Mount of Olives and you're just right there. It's a, it's a good distance, but you can't miss it. The temple is so huge and the Mount of Olives is right there next to it. And so this conversation in Matthew and Mark goes on the Mount of Olives. So it's been called the Olivet Discourse. You might say, what is the Olivet Discourse? Maybe you've heard that in the past and you were just too embarrassed to ask. The Olivet Discourse means that they're on the Mount of Olives and they're having a conversation. And it's about the end times. So when you study eschatology, you might come across something that says the Olivet Discourse, and now you know. You don't have to nudge anybody or go look it up. The Olivet Discourse. That's what the Olivet Discourse is. It's the study or the discussion of the end times and of the temple here. And so while they're on the Mount of Olives, they see these beautiful stones, these votive gifts. And the disciples, we know from Mark's gospels, uh, gospel that is Matt, it's a... Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the particular disciples, asking Jesus this question. And as they're, I say asking Jesus, but noticing the, the beauty of the temple. In verse 6, Jesus says, As for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another which will not be torn down. Which is a strange thing to say. 
Uh, Jesus, isn't that a beautiful temple? They get up to the Mount of Olives. Look at that. Isn't it beautiful? Yes, it's beautiful. No doubt Jesus is saying, but the days are coming when that beautiful structure will be completely leveled. And it is. It was. Uh, what's left today is just of the outer courtyard. The western wailing wall today is, is not even part of the temple. It was just an outside wall, a barrier to the temple. The temple was laid waste. And you can see the remnants of it in Jerusalem today with the stones that have all been torn down. And so naturally the disciples would ask. Verse 7, they questioned him saying, Teacher, when, will, when therefore will these things happen? When are these things going to happen? You might underline that. Jesus never answers when because he is refraining from telling them when. When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? It's a legitimate question, but the answer is not for them, nor is it for us. But here's what Jesus does say. He says in verse 8, see to it that you are not misled. Everyone in, in the in the Church should underline that verse in their Bible. In context and out of context, see to it that you are not misled. See to it that you are not misled about the end times. See to it that you are not misled about who Jesus is. See to it that you are not misled about the wrong news show to watch. See to it that you are not misled to think that the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans are going to be in the Super Bowl this year. It's a great wish and a pipe dream, probably not going to happen. See to it that you are not misled. I went to a, a, a gathering the other night. Um, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and this year we're celebrating 100 years. It was begun in 1924, and so every month of this year, Dallas Seminary has a, uh, an event whereby people gather together and commemorate that event. In Houston, we gathered on Thursday night, and, and uh, I was reacquainted with some old friends uh, that I hadn't seen in a while and sat next to a, uh, a nice lady some other people, and uh, at the table right next to us was our old friend Scott Wall and his dad, Joe Wall, and we got to talking, and his wife and all. It was a great time. And, uh, and our, our president of the seminary got up, and, and he did a, a great 10-minute, five-point sermon. It was wonderful, uh, just spot on. Dallas Seminary is still where it was in 1924. We preached the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. We preached the theology of the Bible, and we preach it from a premillennial standpoint, which is what the Bible is, how it's laid out. Everything was reaffirmed, blah, blah, blah. And as I was talking to one of the people that night, um, I used to be a, a professor at the College of Biblical Studies, which now meets on the same campus as Dallas Seminary in Houston. Dallas Seminary's main campus is obviously in Dallas, but one of their campuses is in Houston. They have a great campus in Houston, a fine campus in Houston. But it's also the campus of the College of Biblical Studies, where I used to be a professor, uh, an adjunct professor. And so when I was an adjunct professor at the College of Biblical Studies, my job was to teach special issues in Old Testament and in New Testament theology. In other words, Lance, go out and teach all the, the, the difficult stuff. We'll make you the pariah here. You'll get to be the, everyone will hate you and you're expendable anyway because you're adjunct and have a church. Okay, I was up for the task. I cut my teeth on teaching Romans there, verse by verse, over a couple of semesters, and then they gave me special issues in Old Testament, special issues in New Testament. So I, I go in, and I did not make many friends. Special issues means controversial issues in the Bible, and people that come to class don't always want to hear that. Uh, but that's my job, you know. My job there, it's my job here. Uh, you're either going to preach God's word, or, or you're going to make everybody happy. And so I... I thought, okay, people are coming to the College of Biblical Studies to hear the word of truth. They want to know the truth. I'm going to give them the truth. Well, at the College of Biblical Studies, there are a handful, not many, but a handful of women who are preachers, which is odd because the Bible says that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man in the church. I didn't make it up. I'm not here to. That's just one example of what the Bible says of what people don't do. Well, this particular person uh, years ago that I was talking to and, and going through, I was going through that, going through 1 Timothy, so I have to hit that. Special issues. Can't miss that if you're doing special issues in 1 Timothy. Well, it came up that she goes to Joel Osteen's church, and she was very offended. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm here to teach the Bible. She was very offended. And I said, I tell you what, why don't you take what I'm teaching and take it to Joel Osteen and you go have an interview with Joel Osteen and I'll give you extra credit. But ask him these questions. 
So I put together question and answer. Here's what you do. Why don't you teach this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you tell your church that they're sinful so that you can tell them about what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ alone? All these, she said, okay. She was all for it. She wrote me and she said, I've got an interview. Great, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. She, the next week I came back, she said, they canceled my interview because I showed them the questions. And I said, well, that, that should tell you something. She said it did. She said it told me everything. Joel Osteen calls College of Biblical Studies and my boss at the time, named Buck Anderson, and he says, Buck, he says, tell Professor Lance Waldy to stay in his lane. I said, Buck, call him back and tell Joel Osteen I'm preaching the Bible whether he likes it or not. I didn't say that, but I wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) What bothered me is that so many of my students were misled. And when Jesus says, see to it that you're not misled, he means it. And the woman I was talking to just the other night who was also at the College of Biblical Studies, this is almost 20 years later, I told that story to. She said, what was your experience at CBS? And I told her one of my experiences where she immediately went, she was very offended. She said, Joel Osteen is a very nice man. I said, yeah, he's a nice man. He's a nice false teacher. And it shut down that conversation. Later on, when our president, Mark Yarbrough, is preaching, he said, guys, what we do at Dallas Seminary is we preach Jesus. And this woman, I was watching her, she was going, yeah, oh, yes, we do, yes, we do. And I wanted to say, excuse me, Joel Osteen doesn't preach Jesus. What are you bobbing your head up and down for? Where is the discernment? People are misled every day. They will affirm a false teacher on one hand and then say, we love Jesus on the other hand. We love the scripture. The way the female preachers in my classes would say, yes, we want to know the Bible. Tell us the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. You can't be a pastor of your church. Well, don't preach that part. And I got scathing reviews as the professor to the point where uh, five years in, I remember one person came in and she said, oh yeah, you're Professor Waldy. You're the female woman hater at this school. That that was the reputation. I thought, well, I'm sorry that that's what it's come to. I have a wife whom I love dearly, a daughter whom I love dearly, and I love my mama. I do not hate women. I love God's word. See to it that you are not misled. We do not want to be people that are going around telling everyone they're wrong. You're wrong. That's mean. We come across as mean being that way. We don't want to do that. I don't want to be that way. But there is a time in which we must stand for the truth, whether people think we're mean or not. In the quest to not be misled. If you're going to be a false teacher today, what's the best way to be? Be the nicest man or woman you can be. Dress like Paula White and look like Paula White and be beautiful like Paula White and all the people like Paula White And make everyone like you so that they can't say you're a false teacher. So that they won't say you're a false teacher. Take a Sunday sermon and water it down to nothing and talk about how to have a happy marriage every other week of your existence. Make everyone happy and ignore the word of God and make sure everyone goes away or you'll make sure everyone goes away misled into thinking that's what we're supposed to be talking about in church. Do not be misled. In context here and out of context, it fits. In context, it's about being misled about the end times. But, ironically, when you're being misled by a false teacher, you can recognize that you are part of the end times problem. Do not be misled, Jesus says. When is it going to happen, Lord? Do not be misled, Jesus says in verse 8. For many will come in my name saying, I am. That's what Luke says, saying, I am. You know what the word I am is in Hebrew. This is Greek. This is egoe me in Greek. But in Hebrew, the, the, the word for I am, do you know what it is? Yahweh. <laughs> Isn't that God's name? Moses asked, asked God, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God tells him in Exodus chapter 3, tell them, Yahweh sent you. Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus is saying, there's going to be a time when 
People are going to come along and they're going to come in my name and they're going to say, I am. I am he. I am the Christ. I am God. Well, are we waiting for that day to happen? No, it's been happening. I mean, the first one I know of that happened after Jesus was a guy named Simon Bar-Kokbar. Simon Bar-Kokbar. In 135, actually in 132, started misleading Israelites. By 135, he tried to lead a revolt, saying he was a Messiah. Well, they expunged Israel from their land completely, the Romans, and renamed it Syria-Palestine. So there's your first. In a series of false prophets in Israel and all over the planet, even in our modern day, a Jim Jones, a David Koresh, and a few other strange folks, have come along saying that they are in some way the Messiah or just the Messiah, Sun, Young, Moon, the Messiah. Many will come, Jesus is saying, in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and disturbances, Matthew says of rumors of wars, do not be terrified. Note this. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. So what Jesus is saying is, guys, you want to know when this is going to happen? Take heart. A lot of bad things are going to happen on the planet. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He's saying that these are not signs of the end. These are not signs of the end. That's why he tells them, don't be terrified. Have there been false Christs? Yes, dating back to at least A.D. 135. A plethora of them in between, between then and now. Have there been a bunch of earthquakes? Oh, yeah, but every time there's an earthquake, people will say, that must mean the end is coming, no? It's just happening what Jesus said. These things are going to happen. Plagues, famines. You ever hear of plagues and famines all over the planet since the days of Jesus? If you lived during the days of the Black Plague in Europe, would you have thought the the, the earth was coming to an end? I would have. But this has got to be it. An entire third of Europe. At least an entire one-third of the population of Europe died in the plague. What are you thinking? Jesus has got to be coming right around the corner. He didn't. That was just part of it. Earthquakes, people dying in terrible earthquakes. He doesn't say volcanoes, but he's talking about ecological disasters, civil disasters, wars, rumors of wars. He is saying, do not be misled. And so I tell you, make sure that when you read the newspapers, which is a bit of an antiquated thing, when you read the news, watch the news, make sure that when you see these things, you're not going, the end must be near. The end must be near. The end is always near. It was near then. It's near now. Clearly the word near has a little different meaning to Jesus than it does to you and me. We are to live as if it's always coming, but Jesus says the end does not follow immediately. These signs from heaven, signs from heaven, a comet that goes around. We see these comets in the sky. They're beautiful. We see a blood moon. Uh, we see a, a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, a partial this, partial that. Back, on, back in the middle of October, we had that partial day where the sun was, was somewhat blotted out. Do you remember that day? I came home that day. I knew it was coming, but I'd forgotten about it. I came home, and it was just, it was a beautiful day. Sun was shining. I thought, what is wrong? I thought my vision was going bad. It really did. Then I realized, oh, that thing's blocked. So you get out and try to look at it. You can't see, but it was blocked. And you think people will look up and go, oh, watch out. Jesus is coming. Let's go get on the roof. Jesus is going to come. The rapture is coming around. Don't be misled. Don't be misled. Jesus himself says these things are happening. And they will happen, guys. You want to know when? Don't be deceived by these events. Verse 12, he says, but before all these things, that would be before all of the, the, the growing amount of earthquakes, all of the famines and plagues that are coming upon the planet, Um, all those false messiahs that are coming, bad teachers, before that, verse 12, all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. To lay hands on means to arrest in a violent way. And they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So, 
Specifically, these guys are saying, Lord, isn't that a beautiful temple? Yeah, it is a beautiful temple, but it's going to be leveled. Oh, yeah? When's that going to happen? Well, guys, don't be misled by the coming events. Those are coming, but even before that, you guys, he's looking at the 12. You're going to be arrested. Don't think for a minute that you're going to, you're going, that I'm going to Jerusalem in two days and we're going to sit there and live happily ever after. You're going to be arrested. People are going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you. The synagogues then were a place of, of a social gathering and worship. But you're going to be delivered to this place of, of worship where you're going to be tried by the men who lead the worship and be put in prisons. We can see him that come before kings and governors. And why will they come before kings and governors? Jesus says, for my name's sake. For simply being associated with me, for being a Christian, you're in trouble. Must have been a pause. The 12 must have looked at each other. Maybe it was a long, awkward pause. When you look into the book of Acts, you see some of this playing out. Early on, you see the disciples are in trouble. I mean, they're hovering up in the upper room before Jesus appears to them and tells them, fear not, peace be with you. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter 2 and they become powerful and they start preaching. They start preaching to the very people that arrested and tried Jesus. Peter's the one that's smack-talking them pretty good. The very people that had Jesus crucified, he's telling them, you're the ones that put the Lord of glory to death. I don't fear you. James came before King Herod. Herod killed him, chopped his head off. And when he saw that it pleased the people in Acts chapter 12, he had Peter arrested too and was going to kill Peter the next day. But God miraculously freed Peter. And Peter continued to live. And Herod died, one of the Herods. It's Herod Agrippa, actually. Apostle Paul, of course, Paul stood before uh, kings, governors, Governor Felix, Governor Festus, King, the Emperor Nero, Paul stood before, was later killed. That's what Jesus is saying before these things happen, before the end plays out. Guys, you're going to be persecuted, delivered, and it's going to be simply because you follow me. Some of us endure certain trials, maybe the one that I told you earlier about. If I wasn't a Christian and was trying not to make people, uh, or was trying to keep people from being misled, if it wasn't my job to teach special issues, isn't everything in the Bible a special issue? I'd had a lot more friends. I wouldn't have had a bad reputation at the College of Biblical Studies that I had. There'd be far more people in this church than there are today if I knew how to preach a little bit nicer. I don't think any of you would be here, though, would you? Watch it. Don't say no. My charm would keep anyone, right? Hey, hey I heard that. <laughs> because we're Christians, and for you young people on a college campus, on a high school campus, God doesn't say you're supposed to have a whole bunch of friends. God didn't say you're supposed to be popular. Everything's supposed to be good. God certainly never told me as a preacher, you're going to have a big church and everyone's going to love you and buy your books. No one bought my books. I had one review on Amazon of a book I wrote. Guess who did that? My mama. <laughs> and of course, she gave me five stars. What else is she going to do? If your mom can't give you five stars, you are in trouble. There is a persecution coming for all of us if it hasn't already started in your life. And Jesus is telling the disciples, guys, don't, make, don't be mistaken. Verse 13, it will lead your persecution, that is. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. That's a great thing when people persecute you. It'll lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Yesterday, one of the saddest days of my life, um, and I've had many, but we buried a five-month-old child. And she wasn't five months out of the womb. She was five months in the womb. And uh, she was a stillborn child. And we buried her yesterday. Um, horrible time but I mean Barbara and uh, and Logan Atkinson the ones who lost their child what an amazing faith 
Uh, just amazing faith that these, this family has. That, that is real faith these folks have. Uh, they ministered to all of us. I think they had me out there to minister to them, but they ministered to all of us, everyone who was there. But I was talking to, to Logan's dad and, uh, who, who lost a grandchild. You know, that's what, what it amounts to. And he said, he said, I was talking to a lady the other day, and she asked me, you know, do you, do you have any grandkids? And he said, and it hit me at that moment. He said, and, I st- and, he, he, and he stopped. He couldn't. He was trying to compose himself in telling me the story. He said, I was trying to compose myself when the lady asked. I said, oh, I bet that was awkward. He goes, yeah, but I got to tell her the truth. Got to tell her the, the gospel by the death of a little baby that never took a breath. At the very least, that little child that never took a breath brought us together for a funeral to be ministered to by the parents that lost her, to have the the grandfather talk to a total stranger and give the gospel. And that's just the beginning of what God is doing through a horrible tragedy. And Jesus is saying the same thing. They're going to bring you to get, you think this is bad, but it's an opportunity for your testimony. Everything, all of our persecutions are an opportunity for the testimony of Christ. Why we're being persecuted. So, Jesus says in verse 14, make up your minds. Not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents would be able to resist or refute. Now, this is not a passage for a preacher today to say, okay, you step up to a sermon, God will give it to you at that time. That has nothing to do with it. Um, And I would never do that. I never step up here without hours upon hours of preparation in God's word to give you God's word. What Jesus is saying is, guys, this is coming and you don't know when. And when it does, just rely on me. I'll give you the words. And I thought about that. I've thought about that for years because I've preached it on many occasions. And I just, I can never get past Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Remember, we left Peter back in the Gospels who was cowering at a little girl, probably looking up to this old hardened fisherman saying, hey, I know you. You were with Jesus. And it scared him to death. No, I wasn't. I don't even know him. Calls down curses from heaven. Let my name be cursed forever if I know this Jesus of Nazareth. A little girl. That was Peter. But after the the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter was a completely transformed man. Standing in the face, as I said earlier, of the enemies of God, of those who killed Jesus, who would gladly kill Peter too, pointing his bony finger at him saying, you killed the Lord of glory. Where did he get that sermon in Acts chapter 2? Where he starts quoting from the book of Joel. What was the last time you quoted from the book of Joel? And you're thinking, where did he get that? How did that come to him? Acts chapter 3, he does the same thing. Acts chapter 4, the same type thing. He's defending the truth, and you're wondering, does he have a desk somewhere? Does he have a Greek grammar? Does he have some history there? Does he, has he been reading Joel? What's going on? And he wouldn't have needed a Greek grammar because there was no Greek New Testament at the time. He was the Greek New Testament. No, Jesus gave him those words. And he preached them boldly. And Luke records them for us in the book of Acts. Note this. Verse 17. I'm sorry, I've skipped some. Uh, verse 15, I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Man, it gets bad, it gets good, it gets bad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be persecuted. Oh yeah, but I'm gonna be persecuted. It's gonna give God an opportunity for his word to go out. Oh, and you're gonna give me utterance and wisdom. Oh, but wait a minute, verse 16, but you're gonna be betrayed by parents. Imagine being betrayed by a parent who loves us more on this planet than our mom and our dad. And they would betray us because of the name of Christ? Yes, they did, they will. And by friends, brothers, parents, brothers, relatives, friends. You ever been betrayed by someone you love? It hurts. You're so confused by it. You think, what? What? They said, what? 
I thought, I thought we were friends. I, to my face, we talked, we, we prayed together, we ate together, we vacationed together. Surely that's not right. Yes, it's a betrayal. Someone you love, someone you were married to, cheated on you. And you thought, well, I thought they loved me. How can that happen? How can they do that? And you're just so hurt and then you're angry and you're everything in between to think of a mother or father did that to you. In this case, it would be because a mother and father would have to separate themselves from their kids who are Christians. They're Christians. I'm not. Don't persecute me. It's them you want, not me. And so Jesus levels with them. Here's what's going on. You're going to be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death, and they did. Peter died before he sees all this come to be. Dies around 64, 65, 66-ish. James is already dead. Judas has killed himself uh, by the time these things begin to unfold. Verse 17, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Shouldn't that be, and you'll be loved because you love me? Folks, if you're not being hated from the name of, because of the name of Christ, you're not advertising your relationship with God very well. It's good to be hated for the right reasons. I mean, some people are hated for, for other reasons, but give people a dilemma. Let them look at you and go, I hate what he believes. I hate everything about his belief system, but he is just a really good guy. I can't hate him too much. Or a fine lady, she just believes crazy things to them. That's the best we can do, but Jesus is putting it all out there, guys. If you're in for this, if you're in for the long haul, you're going to be betrayed because of your relationship to me. You're going to be hated by all because of my name. And he says in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Does he mean that they'll never be hurt? Don't miss this, folks. No, he does not. I, this is my interpretation, and so you can take it or leave it. Please don't take it as gospel. But I think that God is far less concerned about us physically than we tend to think. We think that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy. We think that. We wonder why wouldn't God want that. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. I don't see God ever saying, I will make sure that nothing ever happens to you physically. In fact, I see the exact opposite, not just in the Bible, but in church history. That the greatest men and women who went out to preach the Bible, who went out to preach Christ, died horrific deaths. Some long and, and overdrawn, I say drawn out tortures for their relationship to Christ. Could they read that and go, wait a minute, I thought you said you, not a hair of our heads would perish. You might have been talking about the 12, but am I not bringing out the same message as the 12? The not a hair of our head will perish has only to do with God is saying, if you are mine, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, I hold you and no one can touch your soul. The essence of your being no one touches. You belong to me. You're like, you're like a child being held by his mama. Nobody is getting to you. The outward, physical shell, oh, you're going to get beat up. Might get captured, tortured, whipped. Might be over a long period of time and then you just die of starvation in a low cell, lowly cell with rats. Some have. You might go ashore and be beaten by cannibals and eaten and have your bones shipped back to the main ship. That happens. That's a real story. You might be like Jim Elliott. All you want to do is bring the gospel to a, a tribe in South America that's never heard the truth. You land your plane, you get speared, killed for no good reason whatsoever, leaving young wives widowed. What? What? I thought not a hair of our head will perish. Isn't that a euphemism for you will never die? Not at all. You're going to die. Did you know that, by the way? You are going to die all the way over here. All the way up to here. We don't know when. We don't know how. 
But it is going to happen. Of course, barring the rapture. There's always a smart that says, but what about the rapture? Fine, fine, forget the rapture. You're going to die. You don't know when. So when you get a disease that says you're going to die, don't be surprised. You are going to. Or maybe it's old age. We're going to die. Die with the gospel coming out of your mouth. Die knowing you're going to die, receiving death, knowing that you leave this place of death and are ushered into eternal life. I mean, I love that. I mean, I don't want to die horribly either. It's got to happen. Jesus is saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect your souls. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, these disciples, they went out and spread the gospel and they all died. With the exception of John, they all died martyrs' deaths. So he can't mean that you'll never die. You will gain your eternal life. How do you gain your eternal life? By endurance. The Greek word is hupomene. Hupomene. It means to stand under something and to remain firm. Well, sounds like I'm saved by works there. No. Faith is faith. We have faith in Christ. We believe in Christ. That's what faith is. It's to believe. It's the same thing. To believe, to have faith, same word. Same Greek word translated. It also means trust. Pistuo means I believe. It means I receive. It doesn't mean I receive. It means I, I have faith. I trust. Pistuo. But by extension, it means I receive Christ. And those who do, those who really do, I, I stress really do, to distinguish those who say, yeah, sure, I believe. Fire insurance, when I die, I go to heaven. There are many who say that, but that's not real faith. Those who really believe, endure to the end, to the very end. When death is knocking at their door, they might be miserable, but they're saying like that old woman I met at a nursing home one time. She couldn't see. She was blind. She was sitting in her wheelchair, reeked of urine. No one was tending to her. And these were her words. Ain't God good? Blind as a bat. Completely reliant upon someone to take care of her, and they weren't. And all she could say was, ain't God good? A big old toothless grin. I'll never forget that because I was a child, I think. I was. Ain't God good? I thought, wow, who says that? Who says, as my friends Logan and Barbara said, when their baby died, I mean, we sang yesterday, uh, um, how great thou art. Isn't that what we sung, Cheryl? Was it how, yes, how great thou art. Why do we sing that at a funeral? Because Barbara says that's the first song that came to her when her baby died. Who does that? I'll tell you, a child of God, a real child of God, says how great to say thou art is to say, as King James English for saying, how great you are, God. And so we sang that at the funeral yesterday outside on the property to a God who took their baby because it was really never their baby, was it? It's always God's. Logan got up and he, he, he read and he did. He was a bold man. He read uh, from Job chapter 1, verse 20. Talking about how Job lost 10 of his kids and Job, what did Job do after he lost his 10 kids and his wealth and his health? He worshiped. He worshiped God saying, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Only, only a child of God says that. Others curse the deity with their fists clenched how dare you take someone I loved what kind of a God does that 
No, not true believers. Not the Atkinson family. How about you? When God takes someone you love, takes something you depend upon, what's the first song that comes to your mind? What will it be? Pray about that now so that when you get into that situation later, you don't have to think about it then. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus says, they want to know when, he gives them a win. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. You know what? I'll come to this next week. It's a whole lot to give, and I've only got 10 minutes. Most of you are completely fizzled out at this point. So we'll pick up next week with that. As I want to say, though, on your bulletin, number three there. Um, actually, that four should be indented out as a main point on your outline. And so that, that's the point I'll just make here. Number one is when Christ returns, change, when he turn, returns, it changes nothing for us in the here and now. To know when any of this happens, think about it. How, how does that matter? If you know it, what are you going to do if you know what happens next week or in 25 years? What is our commission? What has God told us to do in the interim while waiting for him? We continue to preach the gospel in word and deed. If Jesus is coming back tomorrow, preach the gospel in word and in deed. All day today and for whatever time we have tomorrow before he comes. That doesn't mean you have to go knock on every door. It doesn't mean you have to knock on any doors. You can spend your time in prayer. Continue to preach the gospel how you live and what you say. Number two, we're always ready looking for the end. Whether we know it's tomorrow or in 25 years, we're always ready. Because if it's going to happen in 25 years, we might say, you know what, it's not for 25 more years. I can go do what I want and then I'll get my repentance in, you know, whenever I feel like it. Hmm. Why do you think God told us time is near? I could come back at any time. Because he knows we as humans, if we know we've got time to, to live as we want, we will. We're always ready looking for the end. And we're always growing in our faith, preparing for the end. Are you? How many of you have already lost track in reading the Bible in a year? It's January the 14th, you're two weeks in. Have you fallen into the two-week syndrome? Eh, I got other things to read. Folks, there is nothing more important than reading God's word. Pick it back up. I wanted to read this, I wanted to read that. that. That doesn't mean anything. You're not taking those things with you. We take what we read. We take what we know about Christ with us. That is the one thing we do take. We might be naked when we return there, but we go with a mind full of what we know about God. Pick up that Bible and read it. I want to make it real awkward to some of you who haven't even decided you're going to do it. Or maybe you've decided you're not going to do it. So I'll just sit here for a minute and be awkward. You're saying, well, wait a minute, I'm already two weeks behind. How am I going to catch up? I'm glad you asked. We got a class for that this semester. All year long. The read the Bible in a year class. It's for slackers. It's for people that maybe got sick or fell back. and so I didn't get that read. Come on back in and we'll bring you back up to speed and set you off on your way to read more. Folks, when you're reading God's word, you're listening to God speak. And when you know what God is saying, you cannot be misled. You're putting together what you hear and what you know from God's word and you're synchronizing it with the world in which we live and you're like, I'm not misled. I can see, I can identify these things. These are wrong. This is not what Jesus said. Read God's word with whatever time we have left. I'm not a reader. I'll let, I'll let the readers be the readers. Are you a listener? Download an app. Those apps talk to you now. You can go one speed, one and a half speed, two speed, Speed it up. If you like a fast talker, you can move it up to a fast talker. If you like a slow talker, go to slow talker. So you don't read. Do you listen? Probably no. <laughs> Do it. Let God's word fill you. Jesus wasn't talking to say nothing. He didn't have it recorded for no reason. 
For those of you who have no interest in God's word, I'm not sure Jesus has any interest in you. But what in common do you have with Jesus if you will not read his word? Why would you even care to go to heaven and hobnob with a bunch of people from every age that do know his word? That know each other? Why would you want to hang around with Jesus in heaven when you didn't care about him on earth? Oh, I really just want to live in heaven. I don't want to go to that other place. That sounds pretty hot. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is God in flesh. He came to this earth to live our lives and to die our death. And for those who receive him by faith, he washes away your sins and prepares a place for you in eternity. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I know I've had some good days on this earth. Many, far more good than bad. And I know what a good meal tastes like and a good bed feels like and a good air conditioner on a hot day and a good heater on a cold day feels like. I know what the company of friends feels like, company of family, people I love. I know what a good vacation is like. I know what the beach is like on a, on a day you look out and it's just beautiful. I know what a sunset looks like and a sunrise. I can appreciate the finer things in life and I like a good, really steaming pipe and hot, hot cup of coffee like many of you, simple things in life. I'm guessing that although those things in particular might not exist in heaven, that what is there is so far and above what I just described that it will take an eternity to finish enjoying them. Are you in? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do not be misled by false teachers they're everywhere inhale God's word God is speaking open it up and let him talk to you let's pray Lord there are some out there some who have accused me others of worshiping the Bible may that not be Lord may our worship be of you through your presentation of yourself in the word Speak to us. Convict us. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word like we hunger and thirst for water and food when we're starving. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness and fill us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 